Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Despite hundreds of hours of congressional hearings, a Hillary Clinton personal mail, email controversy, and the trial of two suspects, what actually happened in Benghazi on September 11th and 12th 2012, continues to remain something of a mystery. In a new book from Hachette, former diplomat Ethan Chorin provides an historical, regional, political, and social context to the shocking attack that killed four Americans, including U.S. Ambassador Christopher Stevens. The book, Benghazi, a new story of the fiasco that pushed America and its world to the brink, brings Mr. Chorin to our show now. Welcome. Hi, I'm Happy to be here. You begin your book with a timeline, and the first date is 1928. Why then? Uh, 1928 is the uh, date of the formation of the Muslim Brotherhood, a, uh, an organiz- a, a pan-Muslim uh, pan organization that has uh, had an, uh, a rather enormous impact on Middle Eastern politics and American politics over the last several decades. And Libya, as you point out, was an Italian colony until 1951. Um, how relevant is that to this story? Um, you meaning the colonial history, or well, the, the, the fact that it was—that's uh, a pretty l- late independence. Um, yeah, it, although Libya's, 18 years later, a military coup led by Muammar Gaddafi overthrew the first king, Idris. Yes. Well, I mean, uh, I, I I give part of the. Part of the point of this book is to give sort of a broad, mm. broad context for the Benghazi attack and all of its, all of the surrounding uh, uh, impact. And um, certainly, Libya's modern history is very much shaped by its uh, its recent history. The discovery it was a very poor country even back in 19, at, at independence. Um, uh, it had been occupied by the Italians for uh, for, for many decades. Well, it's pretty was, close, isn't it? It's uh, it, it's. It's uh, not that far from Italy across the Mediterranean. Yes, it's on the. It's a. If you look at a map, people don't really quite rec- recognize how prominent Libya is in the Mediterranean and Africa. It's a very large country that sits on the southern border of of, of Europe. And what happens in Libya actually, in, you know, has a has quite a bit of impact on on Europe. Whether it's uh, you know both you know economically um, in terms of refugees that have, that have been coming through from Af- elsewhere in Africa, and, and it's also, been cooperating uh, with the EU in stopping refugees from going to Europe. Yes, uh, I mean there, that's a whole other whole other issue. But I know I did a radio show on it uh, some months back. <laughs> um, but basically, the Obama administration uh, and, and and administration since have uh, basically felt that it's Europe's job to clean up Libya and make sure there's order and stability there. But we intervened and didn't uh, didn't uh, have really much of a plan for what was going to come next. And that's that's the immediate context, or at least. That's part of the context of why Benghazi happened. Well, I say yeah. I relate in the book that, in fact, the, the thing that you should look at in terms of why Libya became such a problem and where Benghazi came from is the uh, the uh, bringing in of Gaddafi from the cold by the Bush administration in the wake of 9-11. And we did a number of deals in that during that period, which uh, wound up coming back and, and biting us in the um, proverbial behind. Well, why was the U.S. Embassy in Tripoli attacked and burned by a mob in December 1979? Had President Jimmy Carter done something to anger them? 
Uh, you know, Qaddafi was a was a, a, a theatrical, uh, intelligent theatrical firebrand who uh, wanted, you know, on one sort of basic psychological level, wanted Americans America's attention desperately. Uh, and, you know, he attached himself to several nationalist causes. He saw himself the uh, the heir to uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, the, 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 the sort of very larger than life Arab nationalist leader. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he provoked the, the, the Americans. Um, and, uh, you know, that was part of it. And then uh, the U.S. under President Reagan attacked targets in Tripoli and Benghazi on April 15, 1986. So there's yes, a lot of... His prehistory yes. to this story. Yes, and and in, critically, there, uh, you know, Gaddafi and, and Reagan had you know essentially had it out on on a number of number of occasions, and uh, that was the Gaddafi had attacked or helped sponsor or pay for a number of attacks on American personnel in Europe uh, just around around that period, and Reagan responded with uh, 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 military attacks, uh, uh, bombings of Tripoli and, and, and Benghazi. That then led to the uh, to Gaddafi's participation in the Lockerbie bombing over in Scotland uh, in 1988, which killed a total of 270 people, among which the major, vast majority were Americans, and that started the essentially spiraling down of American-Libyan relations. And during that period of time, essentially the United States and the UK started basically courting a number of individuals and groups uh, in an effort to try to topple or assassinate Gaddafi. On one hand, we backed uh, a couple of former uh, Gaddafi uh, military leaders who were uh, plotting plotting a coup against Gaddafi. And on the other, we, we backed a group of, uh, of what were to, uh, uh, recent uh, uh, Afghan-Libyan Mujahideen, uh, you know, people with experience fighting fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan, um, and by backing those two separate groups, and it gets complicated. But um, by in intervening in that fashion, we essentially set Libya up for the two powers that is, are essentially have been fighting for uh, for control of Libya uh, ever since, and uh, created the context for the Benghazi attack. And then there was a U.S. invasion of Libya on March twentieth, two thousand three, when George. W. Bush was president. Uh, what led to that? And what was the result? You mean the inter intervention under yeah. under Obama after the uh, Arab Spring? Well, no, the one the the one on March twentieth, two thousand three. Who? Uh, oh, that wasn't that wasn't an, that was an agreement. Essentially, mm -hmm. the United States decided in the wake of the Iraq War to strike a deal with Gaddafi. And you were uh, one of the uh, handful of U.S. diplomats that were sent to Libya. Yes, so I was on the ground at that time. Uh, I didn't know what was going on. I was a diplomat, and I was sent there to help basically set up a new diplomatic uh, relation uh, presence in 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 Libya at the time. And it was a a very rudimentary guarded uh, diplomatic outpost, much like the one that was attacked in 2012. We had very little security, and um, the assumption was that Gaddafi was going to uh, and his security forces were going to protect us. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was very concerned about the security situation back then, and not a whole lot has really changed since then. And so we had a rapprochement with uh, Gaddafi at that point, and the U.S. rescinded its designation of Libya as a state sponsor of terrorism. That sounds like a, a nice, peaceful time. 
Well, it, well, in fact, it was a bit of a honeymoon on the ground in the sense that everybody wanted to make this good, good news story work. And in fact, the conditions were were ripe for something for some form of trans- transformation of, of, of Libya at that point. Um, the uh, the problem was we really didn't think think it ver- think it through very well. Uh, the Bush administration basically wanted was attracted to Libya because it could offer many things that the that the that Iraq, which was then you know starting to fall apart after the uh, U.S. invasion in March, uh, Libya could offer many of the things that Iraq didn't. Uh, large contra- contracts for U.S. Uh, oil companies, uh, uh, the narrative of, of a, a country that uh, was, as a result of the Iraq war, now frightened into uh, reforming itself, uh, and a uh, nuclear non-proliferation success, as in Gaddafi was offering up his weapon, weapons of mass destruction for, uh, uh, as, as a part of the deal. Of course, the details were a little more complicated. Gaddafi really didn't have much of a nuclear program, um, and he had chemi- he did have chemical precursors and, and and some chemical weapons. But those actually sat in Libya for another nine years, uh, un- un- undismantled until the uh, Arab Spring happened, at which point we basically rushed in and tried to, to clean up some of that uh, post-fact. Um, and then... Yeah. On the night of September 11th, the morning of September 12th, 2012, members of the Islamic militant group Ansar al-Sharia stormed the U.S. consulate in Benghazi and also attacked a nearby CIA annex. How many people died or or were injured? Well, um, on the on the American side, of course, Ambassador Stevens uh, was killed. Um, uh, he was a, a colleague and, and a friend. Um, uh, and you had uh, Sean Smith, Tyrone Woods, um, and Glenn Doherty. So there were four four official casualties on the American side, and uh, a large number on the Libyan side. But we don't we don't know the numbers of those. Something well, the, the number I've read is ten, but probably was more. And you say uh, Chris Christopher Stevens was a friend. Was do you think he was an effective diplomat? I think he was a very effective diplomat. I think his uh, uh, the, the descriptions of Chris Stevens's role in the whole Libya saga has been kind of uh, hijacked for political purposes by, in, in fact, both sides. Uh, and this is a theme of my book: is that you know essentially when you look at, at, at Benghazi more carefully without the political lens on both sides. Uh, it becomes a, a Rosetta Stone for all kinds of uh, uh, diagnoses of American dysfunction uh, uh, in both domestic political uh, framework and and also U.S. foreign policy, which um, we, which we are suffering through right now. Yes, and I, I, I one of my main arguments is that Benghazi is really in order to understand where we are today politically. One, as distasteful as it may be for many people in, in this country, or at least the political leaders, um, one really needs to look at Benghazi as uh, as a case study of where things started to go really wrong. Um, it is, in my my view, having lived in you know and been involved in in, in the Middle East and and, and U.S. Uh, foreign policy for twenty years. I think Benghazi has been done a huge amount of injustice in its exploitation and also the the irony that for all of the fuss for four years over Benghazi and who was to blame and all of this all of this stuff on both sides we really don't the the general public does not really understand what the heck went on there and if it has any significance at all and in fact I agree that it has a very great significance and we're seeing many of the sort of after effects and perturbations of of that uh, of that event today 
You were planning to do something that would be very positive. You planned to meet Christopher Stevens in Benghazi on September 12th to coordinate a Libyan-U.S. public-private partner partnership to upgrade medic a medical center. Um, yes. So <laughs> you would have thought that would have been appreciated. And it was appreciated greatly. Um, the people who who attacked the, uh, uh, the 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 mission in Benghazi, you know, were were doing something very strategic. They wanted to create chaos in order to derail the very fragile democratic, you know, or progressive transition that was that many were trying to implement there. But they got very little help from the United States. And indeed, Hillary Clinton, in, in an interview for this book, one of the things that mm -hmm. she kept emphasizing was the fact that we really could have done, she felt we could have done a, a lot more to help Libya. And of course, Obama, President Obama, also in an interview with uh, uh, Tom Freeman of the New York Times, uh, you know, said that the failure to do something to think about what was going to happen after we intervened was one of his major regrets. Uh, we haven't heard a whole lot about, you know, the problem was at that point, look, many of the consequences of that action have taken place over the last uh, five or six years, and no one is talking about that. Now, how significant uh, was the fact that this attack occurred on S September 11th? Had uh, Libya uh, been involved in the 9-11 attacks in the U.S. in 2001? No, but the, not at least not uh, not directly. The Libyan Libyan, you know, essentially a lot of this goes back to the time when the United States, uh, after the as part of this deal in 2003, the United States and the UK collaborated to essentially go and kidnap many of the people that the UK and others other Western entities had been um, negotiating with to try to kill Gaddafi. We, we, they, after 9-11, they instantly became uh, en uh, enemies of the state. So uh, the intelligence, our intel Western intelligence agencies led by the United States went and picked them up and delivered them to Gaddafi for torture and interrogation. Hmm. Um, which, uh, you know, these people were not uh, innocent of, uh, uh, by, by any means of, of, of uh, actions against the West, uh, but that certainly didn't make them any happier. And uh, when the, you know, the, 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 the sort of striking thing is that over the course of the years following, the, the U.S. government uh, decided to try to somewhat to, to create some sort of rapprochement with them as a part of the broader rapprochement with Gaddafi. So everyone thought that with Gaddafi basically somewhat reformed and these radicals somewhat tamed, Libya could move forward into a future um, better situation for everyone. The problem is when the when the revolution came and, and started in Benghazi in 2011, all of a sudden, all of these people were, were out of jail or out of whatever circumstances they were in. And many of them were uh, essentially attracting attention from other other states that became proxies and um, the whole thing fell apart. So this, again, is the origin of the Benghazi attack. And there was no it's not an accident that it was on 9-11. Um, there were clear Al Qaeda uh, connections, and um, and and that symbolism was uh, was certainly not uh, not to be lost. My guess is Ethan Chorin, C H O R I N. His book Benghazi: A New History of the Fiasco That Pushed America and Its World to the Brink, published by Hachette. This is WBAI New York. 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Now, Tripoli is the capital of Libya. Why is Benghazi at the center of this story? 
Well, Benghazi has been at the center of the story in, of Libya for uh, for decades. It's uh, uh, it's a very it's it's essentially I mean it's a city of nearly a million people, um, and its role in terms of the dynamics with the Gaddafi regime was critical. I mean, essentially, this was the seat of opposition to uh, to Gaddafi, um, and the intervention in 2011 was in fact sparked by this fear, very real fear, that Gaddafi was going to uh, take it out on the population of Benghazi. Gazi. Um, and that's, you know, the Obama administration and many of his senior officials were arguing that uh, we needed, we can't, we need, we can't tolerate another Rwanda or uh, 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 ex-Yugoslavia type situation that we had to prevent a humanitarian disaster. So the, the big irony is, of course, that we intervened and that to, to save Benghazi from um, uh, from Gaddafi. And then essentially within a few months, uh, uh, many of the, much of the eastern part of Libya was overtaken by Al Qaeda and ISIS, um, which, again, is not to say that the population of Benghazi and Libya as a whole was was if you look back 10, 12 years, was actually very well, I have to just say this. Uh, largely pro um, pro American, Libya had been insulated through its dictatorship uh, dynamic from many of the sort of constant satellite bombardment of of, of uh, sort of the negative aspects of American and other foreign policies in the region. And certainly, when, while I was there, I, I just felt a a um, you know. <laughs> This was a country that 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 with a very small population, a large amount of wealth, and uh, was really looking looking to America to uh, to help turn the turn the page for them. Um, so it was a missed opportunity. It was a great missed opportunity. And as we mentioned earlier, you were in Benghazi when the attack took place. You were the co-director of an NGO at the time that was working to help build medical infrastructure in eastern Libya. But did you actually witness the Benghazi attack and its aftermath? We were at a, uh, I and my, my, my colleague were at a hotel about uh, uh, a couple of kilometers away. away. I was on the, the phone with the mission while, while the attack was just starting. Um, and uh, actually, Chris, Ambassador Stevenson had invited me for dinner that night. And I had demurred because basically I felt that uh, this was too, too dangerous. And I assumed, I sort of kidded with, with Chris that he had um, yeah, m- much more security than we did. And that's um, why you're alive right now. Well, because you turned down that dinner. Certainly, uh, it's, 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 it's haunted me ever since. But, um, it, you know, uh, you, you get. I had a very bad feeling about the whole trip to begin with. Uh, and I think this is very critical in terms of there's been this question of why the heck was a U.S. ambassador in Benghazi under such circumstances. And I think, you know, this it comes down to the fact that the situation in Benghazi was was falling apart very quickly. And with it, the essentially the entire kind of uh, reason for the American presence in, in Libya to begin with. And Chris made a decision that he needed. He felt I, I, I know this uh, in part because we had a a long discussion a few months earlier in Washington while he was waiting to be confirmed as ambassador, he felt that something had to be done in Benghazi to attract the American government to pay attention to that region specifically, or else 
Benghazi would fall and Libya would fall with it. And both of us were in very different capacities. I was a private, now a private uh, individual, uh, a civilian, and he was uh, you know, act, acting as ambassador. But we both were absolutely convinced that you know, the United States needed to show that it, it was willing to step in and, and help rebuild um, parts of the, the, the country's infrastructure um, or, or, or a disaster would, would, would take place. And of course, that's exactly what happened. I mean, I, I felt like, you know, this project we were working on in Benghazi was uh, important enough that uh, it was worth making, you know, taking risks in, because otherwise, if it didn't happen when it did, it, it, the chances of it ever happening later were, were very small. You've said, uh, quote, in the West, we can now expect a strong temptation among governments and private enterprise to declare the Libyan experiment a failure and to respond by disengaging, retreating, or focusing only on the extirpation of radical elements. That would be a terrible mistake. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. That was the New York Times op-ed that I wrote the day after the attack. The uh, U.S. relationship with Gaddafi was interrupted by the Arab Spring revolutions in late 2010. Uh, that led to, in 2011 to the U.S.-led intervention that overthrew um, him. Uh, many Democrats have dismissed what happened at Benghazi as a vehicle for right-wing attacks, particularly on former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And many Republicans maintain that President Obama's administration engaged in a nefarious cover-up. And that takes up a large part of this book. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Um, I think the, the, what we don't understand about collectively about Benghazi was the harm that was done by the two opposing political partisan narratives, both of which, for somebody who lived through the uh, the immediate surrounding attack and the uh, the origins of the of, of the scandal back home. This was it was very. I mean, I have to say that. I mean, I had I there was a delay of about ten days between when I left Benghazi and got to Istanbul and was waiting for my colleague, one of my colleagues, to get out. And when I came back to the states, and when I came back to the states, the the trying to make sense of how the heck the story. Um, sort of morphed into these two alternating uh, 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 adversarial narratives was just, it was shocking. It was almost like, it felt like a punch in the gut, actually. And that obsession, I mean, because both narratives were, had elements of truth and were deeply flawed. And yet both of them, both Democrats and Republicans were screaming at each other that, you know, they had, they were the, the, the ones who carried the full truth. And it's much more complicated than that. And you need context to understand how these narratives were, were wrong uh, and when where, where they were right. And I had this, this sort of fantasy while I was writing this book that if you, know, you could actually get Republicans and Democrats to sit down in a room and have some moderator that, that had an all-knowing moderator who could present both sides with where they were right and where they were wrong, that they would feel both vindicated and uh, deflated, and that that, might, that exercise might actually be very helpful <laughs> because, uh, you know, essentially it would kill the, the sort of fake news in, in its tracks. How relevant was it, do you think, that Barack Obama was president at the time? Very relevant. I mean, I, I'm, I, you know, people reading the book will probably come away with the idea that I'm critical of the Obama administration, and I absolutely, I am critical of, of the certain decisions that were made, particularly with respect to, uh, to Libya uh, and Syria. Well, you're um, critical um, of pretty much every administration 
uh, during yeah during i mean history. but this is the point is that nobody see everybody is so involved with blaming the other party that nobody can see the bigger picture that in fact the last three administrations and it can you know you can trace this farther back but particularly the last three administrations have essentially taken us the politicized us foreign policy and security and uh used these these events particularly benghazi as kind of like a focusing magnifying glass to aggravate domestic political uh, disputes while while degrading the American capacity to actually identify uh, such such dangers and act uh, decisively and intelligently abroad. This is the main uh, ambassador Patterson. Uh, Ann Patterson, who was uh, former assistant secretary, has has said on numerous occasions that that Benghazi was like was an absolute disaster for U.S. foreign policy because it it basically created this and and I elaborate on this and I think part part of what she meant is it created this. Uh, heightened risk aversion across the board that essentially prevented America from doing anything that might result in danger to U.S. personnel abroad and then boomerang back and create another uh, Benghazi scandal that would haul people up before uh, before committees. So we we essentially pulled up, pulled our spies and our diplomats behind uh, behind walls and relied increasingly on remote control or you know warfare by proxy and by drone which, of course, had numerous other uh, horrible you know, impacts and basically created a situation in which while we're absent from, the, from this region, and of course, many Americans would like to think, well, you know, good riddance, the Middle East only brings bad stuff, so let's get out of there. But basically, the fact, the solid fact is that the region has always managed to draw, people, draw us back in, and we, 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 we're better off knowing knowing what's going on than than um than burying our head in the sand and thinking that uh, it'll all just go away. Hillary Clinton has called Benghazi a stain. Mm-hmm. I'm well I'm uh, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what she means, but um when he spoke at the UN, yeah, yeah, the uh, accusation. What she said was that the accusation in in her her book, what happened, the sort of the analysis of the of the election, um, that the Benghazi, the accusations around Benghazi created this uh, stain. Uh, this I don't know what if it, that was the exact word that she used, but yes, um, that she couldn't wash that, that couldn't be washed off. Hmm. That essentially, and, and, and in that statement, she's basically acknowledging that, as, as many other senior uh, uh, Obama officials have uh, privately, that Benghazi was really far more influential in the, in the Trump election than anybody has, has really um, wanted to say, I put it that way. I mean, the Democrats have absolutely no incentive to to mag, to to place a lot of attention on the uh, on the role of Benghazi in, in in the election for obvious reasons, and the Republicans have basically used up have, have exhausted all of their avenues at least for now uh, in terms of, of making hay out of it. But both of the, but there's truth and falsehood in both sides of these of these arguments. The Republicans weren't all wrong about everything, and the Democrats weren't all right about everything either. When he spoke to the U.N. uh, not long after the incident, President Obama said, quote, the attacks of the last two weeks are not simply an assault on America. They're also an assault on the very ideals upon which the United Nations was founded. The notion that people can resolve their differences peacefully, that diplomacy can take the place of war, and that in an interdependent world, all of us have a stake in working toward greater opportunity and security for our citizens. Very, very nice, mm-hmm. but almost irrelevant to the situation. 
Well, the problem, you know, uh, as I argue in the book, uh, and, and this goes back to the question you asked before about what, what relevance it was that Obama was president during this time, the Obama administration was in the unfortunate and fortunate position of basically, it, uh, you know, the the nine eleven attacks and its and its and its aftermath created a an opportunity for somebody you know uh, articulate uh, and visionary hopeful to come into power uh and uh and 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 redeem america in some way the the problem the problem with that uh that framing is that you know he was essentially the president was essentially beholden to uh this idea that he had to clean up any 911 related messiness or at least make it look better so um the, the, and the administration was very, very sensitive to attacks by, by the right on anything related to 9-11 or terrorism. So there's this constant, you know, and the NSC and its, and its uh, sort of uh, media people were very uh, keenly watching out for anything that could potentially, uh, as Obama put it, you know, de- uh, de- derail his second term. And you have to look at that, at that sort of, sort of, I call it, you know, it really was a bit of an obsession, even if it was a, a justified obsession. You have to look at that when you when you examine what happened at the end of the um, Benghazi attack, because here was this this Benghazi was kind of like the that 3 a.m. phone call, the thing that that everybody you know dreaded would happen. And I think there was a, a kind of a panic reaction there. And, and that feeds into the whole risk aversion issue that I Said, mentioned earlier, um, where uh, essentially the, the administration was trying to figure out, A, probably a bit what was going on, because it really wasn't from, from Washington. There were some, some confusing aspects of, of, of the sur- surrounding um, events of, of Benghazi. Um, but uh, there was um, certainly, I, I, I can say from my personal standpoint and the standpoint of the diplomats and uh, see, uh, uh, commercial senior commercial people who were on the ground in Benghazi at the same time I was, we all had a very quickly, quick uh, sort of assessment of the general outlines of what, what had gone on. And one senior, uh, uh, one Austri- Aust- Austrian diplomat who was based based uh, in, in Benghazi at the, in Tripoli at the time, you know, had this quote, which I totally agree with, which is, you know, I, if I could figure out what the outlines of what happened in Benghazi in, in a couple of hours after uh, you know, the following morning, why did it take the United States uh, you know, two to three weeks, you know, if ever to, uh, to to be very clear about what happened there? And I think really that was the um, you know, that was the key mistake that the Obama administration made was was not to be clear about what they knew when they knew it. It was always and this isn't a partisan thing. If you look at you know, not just the Republican attacks on this, but, you know, entities like The Washington Post you know, wrote very clearly that that, uh, you know, the Obama administration was was uh, was waffling on this issue. And you can understand why they would would waffle, because essentially they didn't want they 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 it, particularly after uh, Mitt Romney lunged for Obama after the um, after the, the 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 attack or even as the attack was going on, everybody expected the Republicans to pounce. And I think the, the mistake that the Obama administration made was thinking that they could sort of engage in some creative um, vagueness long enough for the issue not to fester before the election, and that after the election everything would be would be okay. And and this this sentiment comes through a couple of the you know uh, prominent uh, post Obama administration memoirs, which came out several years after the attack. This notion that if we just 
you know, that, that, that this scandal could not last much longer. But I argue that essentially the fact that 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 the Democrats were playing the traditional role of trying to sort of escape from from Republican attacks only encouraged them even more. Uh, and the, that the proper uh, policy at that point would have just been to, you know, when when <laughs> ultimately just call it what it what it was rather than, you know, being vague about it. And to this day, we've not brought any 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 of the people who were uh, planning responsible at a planning level to, to justice. We've, we've uh, captured a couple of, uh, of, of sort of players in the attack, uh, brought them to the United States, put them on trial, and then mm. they were acquitted of most of the of most of the of all of the of the most serious charges. So the whole thing has just been sort of left, you know, to sort of and, and the American public with this idea that it really doesn't, you know, there's a lot of noise, but it really doesn't matter that much. Um, but again, I argue very strongly that, that Benghazi and the way that it, it was sort of like um, what well, was a perfect scandal, uh, in part because of what I just mentioned, the timing, uh, the anniversary of 9-11, the proximity to the uh, to the 2012 election, the, the concern that there was going to be a, a blowout, but also on a technological level. I interviewed many data scientists and people who follow uh, social media trends from the beginning uh, about the impact of timing on the Benghazi, uh, on the scandal. And the fact that these people say almost to a person that the uh, timing, that, that the evolution of social media was such that um, if, if the attack had occurred a couple of months or even three or four months before, you wouldn't have seen this sort of um, the skyrocketing of polarization that the you know the silo silos that created by social media and the and the um you know also the 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 way that the russians used the benghazi attack as a feedstock for 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 their cyber attacks you just wouldn't have had this such such an intense response um uh, political response you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large at WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at wbai.org with Ethan Charn. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Benghazi, a new story of the fiasco that pushed America and its world to the brink. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's Give and then the number 2, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And we thank you very much. And return to Ethan Churin, who was a U.S. diplomat posted to Libya from 2004-2006 and a witness to the attack in 2012. A year later... Uh, he was nominated by both Senators Dianne Feinstein and Senator John McCain, Democrat and Republican, to succeed Stevens as ambassador. And from 2020 to 2021, he was senior advisor to the Minister of State for Foreign Affairs of the United Arab Emirates. Uh, and his book is published by Hachette. Uh, you were saying before the break— that uh, Benghazi has entered the American lexicon as a scandal, not 
a tragedy like 9-11, the USS Cole bombing, or the 1998 U.S. Embassy bombings. Uh, do you see any parallels with the continuing investigation to, to what happened in the Capitol on January 6th? Well, sure. I mean, in, 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 but I also uh, argue that that uh, I mean, now everyone is fo- is obsessed with the idea that uh, tr- Trump, or at least the Democrats, are obsessed with the idea that Trump is the new is the great threat to American democracy um, or his 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 comeback. Um, but I, I would argue, as as do people like uh, Adam, you know, the director Adam McKay, uh, that uh, you know the damage were, came before before that. That essentially Trump, Trump is sort of a symptom of the dysfunctions that that were galloping at greater and greater speed until until the election, and that's why I think that Benghazi is a key kind of uh, place to start to look from a forensic perspective. You're trying to figure out where all of this polarization came from. We don't give Benghazi nearly enough. Uh, I guess credit is not the quite, quite the right word, but that's 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 it. Four years of of, of partisan uh, uh, rancor uh, and and ten commit ten congressional committees and thousands of Fox News uh, headline uh, broadcasts and all of the all of the rest of it. It had to have, as Hillary Clinton put it, you know, damaged something in this country. And we treated it as if, you know, uh, it's not it's not a trap. I, I, well, I hear this a lot, that Benghazi wasn't a, a tragedy because on, like 9-11 was because it was only only four people died, whereas in in in, in the original 9-11, almost a th- you know, three thousand people died. It's not about that. It's about what did this what did this uh, this event how did it impact the American social and political fabric? Well, and- since it came on the cusp of the 2012 election and on the anniversary of September 11, 2001, it evoked issues central to the 2012 campaign. Which party can keep America safe and, and other partisan issues like immigration and protectionism? Yeah, it's back what I what I said about Benghazi being a perfect scandal. It was if you if you were to try to create a scandal that would resonate at that point in time, you could not do you could not have done a better job, because essentially Benghazi it it it, it evoked in both parties this sort of visceral uh, feelings about about nine eleven and all the identity issues that were that were associated with it, uh, those things that you just mentioned, but also the war on terror was sort of this giant kind of moral. Uh, tug of war between you know right and left with both sides you know using that as the as the banner of their of their uh, you know their promise to the American people and um, you know combine that with the uh, changing uh, very rapidly changing and powerful social media uh, and all of the rest of these uh, the timing uh, aspects and you've got a perfect scandal and it really doesn't matter what what uh, is happening on the ground in Benghazi we didn't really care that much nor did we really know what was going on in Benghazi it all reflected back onto the United States and what I'm arguing is the biggest one of the biggest dangers here is that American foreign policy has become so politicized and the institutions that govern American foreign policy from the CIA to the State Department have all been pitted against each other in a, in, in a political fashion that we're just engaging in this giant exercise in self-harm. Um, and that needs to be fixed. And we're, we're just continuing on this on this train wherever it's going. And the only people who are benefiting from this are groups like Al Qaeda and Russia and China. So we really we really, you know, the United States can't expect to be a, a continue to be a, a, a an influential world power with a, 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 with all of its uh, political machinery aimed at, at, at each other back home. 
Ten congressional investigations failed to answer some basic questions like who carried out the attack in order to bring them to justice or, or why the embassy used local militias to protect the U.S. consulate in Benghazi. Well, I mean, again, I, I, I argue that the, you know, the vast majority of the investigations around Benghazi had a, a highly political element. To well, House Even Benghazi Committee Chairman Representative Trey Gowdy of South Carolina has defended his committee's lengthy Benghazi probe, saying that it was intended to reveal the facts and not to torpedo Hillary Clinton's presidential chances. Okay, well, that's that's baloney, obviously, but um, it, it, that also doesn't mean that the Benghazi committee didn't uh, actually try to do some things that were that might have been productive. I mean, they looked into uh, uh, very closely the whole issue of the uh, military, the, the sort of the slow military response and the protection issues. They put, uh, you know, which is again more subtle than most people realize. Uh, I'm certainly not suggesting that there was any stand down order or any of these other things that uh, became such uh, hot button issues on the right. Um, but there were certainly was a, a evidence of, of uh, uh, a system that was not working well. Um, and that, uh, the other thing is that they tried that the that the Benghazi committee tried to do was to look to, to unravel the connection between Libya and Syria and the transfer of weapons from Libyan rebels to uh, to Syrian rebels. And that uh, all of that stuff is at least online and you can look through it. A lot of it, the vast majority of it is was designed absolutely to um, to to target uh, Hillary Clinton, who really did not have much of a, of a power stake in the uh you know, essentially, as, as Secretary of State, she had some there were limits on what she could do. I, I'm not sort of jumping into into that whole issue here. But um, uh, I guess in summary, I would say that, uh, yes, the uh, the Benghazi committee, all of these committees were, were intensely political. And if one side says that the other the other was wholly political and that their investigations weren't political, that's also baloney. Well, it's been pointed out that. Uh, that Republican objections to the January 6th uh, investigation committee uh, really are uh, totally in opposition to what they were doing here. So uh, (laughs) Democrats and Republicans had basically evolved into this dysfunctional relationship in which uh, you know, it's really like a, 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 an acrimonious married couple, uh, where both parties really want to kill each other, and they'll do anything that that. Uh, and so the America, the Democrats have, have developed this role of being somewhat a, a, a victim, and uh, in some cases they're 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 increasingly standing up for themselves, but they've got a far way to go. And the Republicans have have mastered the art of the attack, uh, only to find that you know some of the some of that overwhelming uh, vigor is 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 coming back upon them too. But again, the victim here is is the American people and our political process and and, uh, and 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 governing standards, and that's what we have to pay attention to. Well, on a larger scale, how much of what happened can be blamed on the legacy of colonialism and past U.S. support for dictatorships in the region? Well, uh, 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 well <laughs> certainly that's a factor, um, but we're not making it any better. I mean, uh, you know, we intervened in Libya. You know, each. The, the Libya scenario was sort of a, um, uh, 
you know, it was a repeat of what we did in Iraq, basically. I mean, in Iraq, one of the big, huge mistakes there was to leave a, you know, to, to, to dismiss anyone who was thought to be ideologically opposed to, to, to us and, 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 and perpetuate this, this giant political vacuum, which, of course, led to chaos and the rise of ISIS, etc. And in Libya, the same thing. We basically came in and we tried to do something on a humanitarian level. And I think many of the advocates for the intervention, including Chris Stevens, felt that, you know, okay, um, we have an opportunity to do something really good here. The difference, I think, Chris Stevens, Ambassador Stevens, who was killed, had diverged from the from the White House and thinking, he, I think he genuinely believed that the United States would engage in some form of more active support for uh, reconstruction in Libya and not just abandon the place and, and, and let it, uh, uh, you know, let the, the political vacuum expand. And it's super, it's a huge irony because his death basically assured that we would, we would abandon Libya. Um, and we haven't we, we just haven't learned the less, these lessons the the uh, you know after after you know in the wake of 9/11 there were various documents that that, that sort of articulated uh, the position in terms of the what what it meant to be a responsibility to protect uh, which was the sort of nascent norm that the uh, that, that the Obama administration used to to justify the intervention in 2012. And a big part of the, the uh, responsibility to be rebuild uh, in these documents is the responsibility to, uh, sorry, responsibility to protect is the responsibility to rebuild. You can't intervene in a country that has fragile institutions and is centralized uh, to, to, to a dictator like Iraq or Libya and suddenly expect, expect that you leave it alone and that things will somehow take care of, take care of themselves. And, and the result is in Libya is that Russia and Turkey have come in and basically rooted themselves in the country and are using, you know, and, and, and Russia has, has used also the, the aftermath of the, of the Benghazi and the, and the Libya collapse to deepen its position in Syria with all kinds of other, other you know, which it's a, it's a stepping stone towards, you know, the, the invasion of, of, of Ukraine. Um, and it, that's, not an, that's not an exaggeration. The United States has essentially refused to stand up for certain, certain things along the way, and our adversaries are taking advantage of it. Your list, my guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Ethan Churin, who's written a book called Benghazi, A New History of the Fiasco That Pushed America and Its World to the Brink. Uh, it is published by Hachette. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Getting back to something you said earlier, uh, you've said that at the core, a core problem revealed by Benghazi is, I'm quoting, American foreign policy has become a proxy battleground for American domestic warfare, where momentous decisions of life and death are made based on political optics at home rather than the merits and morality of given policy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. So, <laughs> <I agree with. laughs> so is that going to continue, do you think? Does, does it really matter what happens uh, as a result of the, the upcoming elections or uh, future elections? Is, is, this oh, the, is this the way it's going to be in, from now on? Well, you know, we're facing uh, the, the, you know, the concerning thing is the, we're facing, you know, uh, uh, crises on a global scale that require, Amer- you know, America is still a unique entity uh, for all its flaws. And there are very few few countries out there that can, that can, can have the, both the strength and moral voice of, of America. 
And um, if it, the, the more that we're, we're dissolving in partisan, partisanship and spending all of this, this effort that could be spent, you know, very well and other, well, other, other polarized, other, fearful and dangerously unstable, I, the, yeah, the well, public it, it, would does say. Does anybody agree, disagree with that at this point? No. I think um, that's what the polls seen. indicate. Yes, we've seen that things are colli- what we need to do is, to, I mean, you know, it almost feels like one's shouting into the wind with these things. But, you know, we need strong institutions. We can't afford the politicization of the state and gutting of the State Department and our and our uh, our intelligence services, et, et cetera. And we, we need to the you know, when, what the collective. And, and again, I have to say that all of this is sort of the you know, is a legacy of, of the United States' response to 9-11. Had the Bush administration treated 9-11 as a mass criminal act and not an ideological, an incitation to ideological warfare, um, you know, we would have saved eight, $8 trillion, which is the you know, cost of the, the, the estimates of the total sort of uh, uh, cost of, uh, to the United States of, of, of the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts. We we have to we have to get a get a, 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 a hold on 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 what has damaged us and how we can potentially uh, reverse that. And of course, social media has played a huge role in polarizing you know the world at, at, at large. And there need to be you know restriction. You know, it's such a complicated problem. I mean, you could talk about election election reform, campaign finance reform, uh, all of this all of this stuff that needs to happen. And we also need strong leaders who can uh, who have a have a vision and aren't just putting out fires, but actually um, looking at solutions. And we need to be able to talk to one another. Um, you know, I say on a very yeah, I look at all of this in, my, in at the end of the book and say, you know, uh, the one I, I don't have any solution, grand solution to any of these things, clearly. But um, I I think diagnosing the problem uh, is, is very important. And that's why looking at Benghazi is is, is super important, because you, you pull away the fog of, of, of Benghazi and it's all laid out there. You know, we've made these mistakes before and we made them in a very bad way in Benghazi. And we haven't learned the lessons yet. You've said that writing this book was like therapy. Yeah, well, the Benghazi attack affected me, you know, deeply. I, uh, you know, uh, Chris Stevens and I, uh, Chris came uh, to Libya after I did. Uh, He wrote me while I was in, we were introduced by a senior foreign service colleague, and he kept asking me, you know, he was bidding on the number two job there and asking me, because I was the one who was sort of out out and about of, of of our group, you know, what is Libya like? And um, I, you know, I told him what I that I, I found it a thrilling, envi- thrilling, bizarre, uh, enriching uh, environment. With you know, there are a lot of downsides to it too. It wasn't uh, it wasn't an easy job by anybody means. But Chris got it immediately. He was the kind of person who you know wanted to be out in the field, not behind a desk. And um, I, uh, you know, we, we developed a friendship uh, that was that, that was. Sort of largely correspondence-based, but uh, spanned uh, you know the time that time until until the attack, and and we both felt deeply invested in in the country and U.S. policy in that in that country. And and still, haven't you and a Libyan American from Texas formed a nonprofit organization to focus on providing medical aid to Libya? We have about a, a minute or so for you to answer. Yes, yes, uh, we did, and uh, you know we were both. Uh, 
uh, drawn to, to, to by our previous experiences. You know, I had people calling me as the revolution was on, thinking that I was still in the State Department and, and asking for help, you know, in ways that, that meant the life the difference between life and death. And I felt like I had this attachment and this love for this country, and particularly Benghazi, which has been much maligned uh, in the media. I mean, one of the things that I hope to say about the book is that, you know, this isn't just dry political analysis. Oh, there's, there's a lot of political analysis in my opinions here, but I, I this is really a personal journey of what I saw from the time that I was based in first assigned to Tripoli through the, 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 the revolution and this attempt to, to put together this medical infrastructure project. I went back to, to the attack and, and what happened when I went back several years later to try to also kind of exercise some of the demons of Benghazi. Well, um, I mentioned uh, we have no time left, but I did want to address this. I mentioned that you were nominated by both Senator Dianne Feinstein and uh, Senator John McCain to succeed Chris Stevens as ambassador. What happened? Well, I think the State Department ultimately had its own candidate. Uh-huh. And I was out. I was, uh, you know. The You're State sorry you didn't get the job? Um, yeah, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. It would still be a messy situation today, wouldn't it? Of course, but I still feel uh, Libya, there, there's, uh, the problem is leaving Libya as it is. The United States should engage. Many people will, will challenge me from, from afar, but Libya has potential, uh, and we, we don't engage. Countries like Russia will, uh, and China and others will pick up the slack. Ethan Sharon's book is called Benghazi, A New History of the Fiasco That Pushed America to the Brink. It's published by Hachette. He was a U.S. diplomat posted to Libya from 2004-2006 and a witness to the 2012 attack on the U.S. diplomatic mission in Benghazi uh, that we've been discussing. uh, he, uh, from 2020 to 2021, he was senior advisor to the Minister of State for Foreign Affairs of the U- 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 UAE. Uh, I thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcast. You should check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Benghazi, a new story of the fiasco that pushed America and the world to the brink by Ethan Churin. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. For 
ten dollars, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, however much you uh, are comfortable with, and it allows us to plan for the future. And we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for ten dollars a month or more. But either way, we hope you'll call right now because BAI is the only station in the New York Radio Dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, and your contribution is tax-deductible. We hope you can join us again tomorrow when Volodymyr Zelensky's former press secretary, Eulia Mendel, will discuss her new book, The Fight of Our Lives. We'll see you then.